as I'm going back to the press box, I got a guy over across the fence going, hey, hey, Montana, he yells. I go, I ain't looking at that, that old boy, I'll tell you. That, that gentleman looks like uh, he goes for hunting with a switch. He yells at me again. Hey, Mon, I can't, won't you come over here for a minute? I said, I, I don't think so. And he said, no, no, come over here. Was that not just the greatest game you'd ever seen? And uh, I was so shocked that I walked over, put the coax down, drank a beer in their tailgate, and uh, we exchanged coats. He gave me his Marshall starter jacket, which I've never worn. And I gave him my Grizzly starter jacket, which I bet he hasn't ever worn either. Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, a podcast series alongside Colton Nuanas. I am Ryan Tutel, and we are very happy in this episode to be joined by the longtime voice of the Grizz, Mick Holine. Mick started at the University of Montana in 1985, and he called Lady Grizz basketball games for eight seasons with Robin Selvig before being asked to take over play-by-play for the Grizzly football team in 1993. In total, Holine was on the mic for seven national championship games and, of course, called the very first national championship victory in the history of the Montana football team, their 1995 national championship. With decades of service to the University of Montana and a front row seat, and for many people, the eyes for their ears at the Grizzly football games week in and week out, Mick Holine seemed like a good place to start our Grizz Greats Silver Anniversary podcast series. Enjoy the stories and enjoy the voice of former Montana football broadcaster Mick Holine. We are very happy to be joined now with the voice of the Grizzlies for many, many years and Mick Holine. Mick, thank you so much for being with us. How are you? Oh, good morning, fellas. Just great memories. You kind of let it, it kind of goes away for a while and then you get a chance to think about it more, but this really brought back some great memories. You know, we're, we're looking forward to reliving those memories with you, but before we get into all that was the 95 season and the national championship, uh, you know, game and victory, I want to ask about you a little bit. You're a lifelong broadcaster, a very decorated broadcaster and author as well, writing quite a lot, but when did you start at the University of Montana? Because when you first started, you weren't actually calling football games right away. Is that right? Well, I actually, in 1984, when I moved, when I moved to Missoula, funny story, I was playing country music for KGBO, and my salesperson, I asked her, if you were new in town, what would you do to make a mark in town? And she said, well, I'd associate myself with the University of Montana. Several years later, she said, I said associate myself, not take it over. <laughs> that, was about the way, that was about the way it happened. Uh they had a tryout for uh, the PA at uh, Dorn Blazer Field for the last two seasons, playing in front of the wood bleachers. I won the tryout. There were two of us. <laughs> and uh, they said, we'll give you 25 bucks a game, peanut butter sandwich, a Snickers bar, and an orange, and two free tickets to every Grizzly football game at Dorn Blazer. I said, boy, that sounds like a heck of a deal, 25 bucks. 
They're still paying 25 bucks, I think. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, uh, I did that. And during that time, uh, Barbara Holman, the associate athletic director, said, we need a new uh, voice of the Lady Grizz. That was 85. And uh, so I got a chance to do Lady Grizz for eight years with Robin Selvick, rooming with him for eight years and uh, on the road and just six trips to the NCAA, NCAA tournament. And uh, after that eight-year tenure, Bill Swanky resigned as the voice of the Grizz. And they came to me and offered me the job and said, that the committee thinks you're trying to big-time them. You didn't apply for the job. And I had just started at the Missoulian as a full-time staffer. And I said, I can't go go to them. And I'm lucky enough they're letting me do Lady Grizz. I can't go to them and say I want to do football, too. They said, well, the job's yours. We're not going to do a nationwide search if you want the job. So I thought about it for a day or so, a minute or so, and uh, went into my boss, Brad Hurd, and told him. He was a diehard Grizzly fan and a diehard Lady Grizz fan, and he saw that there was value in my voice being associated with both the newspaper and with radio. So I was lucky enough that a guy... It was ahead of his time in those things. I tried for years to get him to do headlines with me, with my voice for the next day's paper. And they wouldn't do it because they figured then TV would steal their stories. Well, what do we got now? Everybody's working for everybody. So anyway, that's how I started. Lucky enough to be there starting in 1993. What was the daily grind like when you were doing both radio and newspapers? Because I mean, I worked in newspapers for a long time. It, it that in itself is like three full time jobs all at once. So how, how did you keep it all together? What was the day to day like when you were doing both? Yeah, it was really goofy because I was working crimes in courts to start with, of course, and so of course I'd notice things on the blotter that uh, that involved you and athletes, and I had to step back and back to the newsroom and say, hey, uh, our starting quarterback uh, got arrested for a fight downtown last night. This, this, that That's one challenge. But to be able to, if you're writing feature, after I got out of Cotson Courts and wrote, wrote feature, really, radio is the mind's eye. You're always writing feature when you're doing radio anyway. So there, there's really pretty strong comparison between the thought process. It's so interesting now, people that uh, haven't lived in Missoula for 30-plus years, anything less than 30 years, Missoula is thought of as, as such a football town, and it absolutely is, and the Grizz football team is such a huge part of this community. But our first iteration of the Grizz Greats podcast was all about the coaching tree, the Judd Heathcote coaching tree for University of Montana men's basketball. And I think that people that haven't been here – uh, a long time forget that Montana once upon a time was a basketball school no question and so you were you were doing uh, basketball both on the men's and women's side during that heyday but start with the men's side of things I mean when when Judd Heathcote left J- Jim Brandenburg's takes over but then when you were there Mike Montgomery uh, sort of laying the foundation for then what became arguably the greatest program in the history of the Big Sky Conference. I mean, what do you remember about those times and just the fervor for basketball that existed in Missoula? Well, there was no doubt about it. Uh, it was a hot ticket in town. 
Now, remember, I was just doing Lady Grizz basketball, not the men. Bill was still doing that when Monty was here. I didn't start with the men until 1993. But I was sure a big part of being around at shoot-arounds and road trips and stuff and watching the evolution of the uh, of the Grizz basketball program. Judd and I used to play handball against each other when he was the head basketball coach at West Valley High School in Spokane. I right across from the street from the spokesman was the Spokane Club. That's where he played. That's where I met him. And he just loved to grind my nose in the ground and beat me at handball. Then I didn't see him for years until I got over here. Secondary thought, uh, Lynn Rosenbaugh, who was an assistant coach when I got here, was my college coach at one time. And, of course, Lynn is Tim Rosenbaugh's dad. And he was born in Bremerton when I was playing for his dad. So there's so many ties that meant that I guess I was supposed to be here. You know, Mick, it, it's interesting because, as you said, you know, you're, you're the voice of the Lady Grizz for, for all those years before you started with men's basketball and football, but you're still around the program and working as a journalist as well. But when when you started in 1993 to be the voice of the Grizz, what was your relationship like with Coach Reed at that time, who'd obviously been here for some years and had really started to build the program up, and it had a little bit of up and down, but generally was headed in the right direction, and obviously a guy that seemed to be everybody's friend, you know? And what, what was your relationship like with him, and then what did it become as you became then the voice of, of the football team as well, and, and obviously then have a closer relationship with the head coach? Well, I was one of the good guys. <laughs> And I bet all you guys were one of the good guys also, if you were around the team at all. Everybody was one of the good guys because Don couldn't remember your name. <laughs> if, if anybody, does, anybody that knows him well would know that a player would walk up to him and he'd go, hey, eight. Then he'd walk away and he'd go, Mick. i say, Mike Earhart. <laughs> he, he didn't. Could not remember people's names. You know, uh, Snickers Bar and your... Uh, in your little uh, mailbox on Monday morning, uh, an attaboy uh, note, uh, just a just a phone call to say, hey, uh, I really enjoyed what you had to say. At, uh, of course, I emceed several banquets with him and took him on the road several times where I introduced him. And uh, they didn't want me. They wanted Coach Reed. So whenever someone would ask me, like, for a chamber of commerce somewhere, I'd take Coach Long, let him win the crowd over, and I'd sit over and eat their prime rib. There you go. That's a good way to get a meal out of the deal at least, right? Yeah, and, you know, Don was, you know, you hesitate to say he's like your grandpa because I'm not that much younger than he is. But I don't think we'll ever know how old he is exactly. He's never told anybody. And I've got it written somewhere in an envelope that I cannot reveal until after he's gone. But uh, he's just one of these guys that cares so much about people and his fellow man. And uh, he's just in the right place at the right time. There are guys who are head coaches, and there are guys who are assistant coaches. And uh, that's a huge line. And he's, he's right at the top of the list. 
You know Blackfoot Communications for our dedication and commitment to support the communities we serve. Did you also know we're experts at keeping customers and businesses connected to their families and clients? At home, Blackfoot keeps you connected with fast internet, reliable phone, and work-from-home options. For your business, Blackfoot keeps you connected with secure corporate networks, unified communications, and remote workforce solutions. For more information, visit grizzgreats.com or call 866-541-5000. Blackfoot, connect to more. We'll get a bit into the uh, the impact he had a little bit more, but I want to ask you, preceding Coach Reed, I know Jack Swarthout was an awesome coach and led the Grizzlies to uh, a couple of their greatest seasons to that point in the late 60s, early 70s, but then not so much success for guys like Gene Carlson and Larry Donovan. I know, I know that uh, when Larry Donovan w- was dismissed, that was sort of a, a pivotal moment for the University of Montana football program. Set the scene for us. I mean, what what was the perception of Grizz football around Missoula, around Montana, and and around the Big Sky Conference right before Coach Reed was hired? I mean, we're talking early '80s. What did people think of the Grizz? What was their reputation like compared to what it became? Oh, we were playing for fifth. You know, we played behind the three schools that left in Montana State. Therefore, we'd be playing for fifth. That's how much we were. Nobody cared about coming to Missoula and playing against us because there was no aura. There was no people. But with, when Coach Reed came, he changed all that. But, you know, Coach Donovan uh, was a large part responsible for getting that stadium built. And him and Harley Lewis putting their heads together and figuring out that it was going to be a, uh, a cornerstone of campus and a cornerstone of that walking trail. And uh, I, I give Larry a lot of credit. Uh, I had a bad situation with him at the end. It took him uh, several years to where he'd even talk to me. I uh, He wouldn't come on my program on Thursday. They were going to play Northern Arizona, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't come on my daily program. And he sent his assistant coach, Vic Clark, who ended up being the holdover coach. And so I asked Dick, being a young journalist, well, Vic... How do you get your team ready to play Northern Arizona this weekend when the word on the street is that you guys are fired? I, I actually asked it now. <laughs> and uh, it was the question everybody wanted asked, but everybody was afraid to ask. He was at the station before I got off the air asking for my head. <laughs> and fortunately enough, the, uh, the person that uh, was running the station at the time knew nothing about football. And all she knew when I came back was, you sure made some guy mad that was in here. <laughs> so it wasn't like he came in, came in the door with, with his guns blazing. So I dodged the bullet on that one, and uh, and away we went. I didn't know Don when he was at uh, at Portland State or, of course, at, at the University of Oregon. But I sure knew of his reputation of being just a class guy. You mentioned the... the beginnings of what became then the mecca of all all division one double a all of fcs football washington grizzly stadium but i've talked to harley lewis extensively about when they were first coming up with that idea and trying to figure out who they were going to get to donate how are they going to raise the funds but what was the reaction in missoula because like you said i mean at that moment grizz football was was sort of small potatoes playing for fifth 
I hadn't only had won the league one time in the history, or I guess three times ever, but only one time in the last 15 years. The Bobcats were the dominant team in the state. So what do people think when when this athletic director and a coach who then was ultimately fired were coming up with an idea to uh, build this this epic stadium that then became what it became today? You know, I think that the people that were really in the background of really sports we're all involved in pushing for that. And I, I would count those people by about 20 that I can name that were behind it and are still behind it and continue, continue even anonymously to, to keep the thing going. You give a lot of credit to the Washingtons. Uh, it's student athletes as far as they're concerned. It isn't just athletics. And of course, without their dedication to the thing, it couldn't happen. John Hoyt, who the field is named after, although his name was taken off of it, uh, an attorney from Great Falls, he was uh, a, a strong backer, and Cliff Edwards, John Edwards' dad in Billings, was also one of those people that uh, that were just there when it was time to open the checkbook and say, you're going to do what? And then you look at it now and think of where we used to sit and throw snowballs onto the field and they've got that beautiful center that I haven't, I haven't even been through it yet. Um, it's, it's just, it's beyond belief that it's become what it has. But, you know, there was a time when we were the crown jewel of the big sky, and before they made these recent improvements, we weren't the crown jewel anymore. Our weight room was substandard, and our other facilities were substandard. So the improvements had to be made, but the fact that they made them is, uh, says a lot for the foresight of what Grizzly football became. You know, Mick, when you took over calling games in 1993, calling football games for the University of Montana, it uh, coincided with some guy named Dave. And uh, pretty interesting that you got to see, and, and fortunate, I think, that you got to see three of the four years of, of the greatest career in the history of Montana football, very likely, and Dave Dickinson. What do you remember about him as a young kid, just starting off, still very, very talented, and but then what he became ultimately through that senior season in 1995? If there's anybody on the sidelines that thinks they can't, that we can't win this game, you're going to need to get off the sidelines. That's what you need to know about Dave Dickinson. South Dakota State down 30, 30, let's see, 31-7. 31-7 at halftime, my first game. I look at Brad Salone and my color guy at halftime and said, this isn't that good a gig. <laughs> and uh, they, were, they were just whopping us up and down the field. In the meantime, Dave's telling everybody we're going to win this game. Well, later, of course, you expected that to happen. But we sure didn't expect it to happen. The South Dakota State went up 38-7 in the third quarter. And back came the University of Montana by then. They were, I was broadcasting to a, a whole lot of empty seats in the stadium and a whole lot of people in their garage party that had no idea what was happening. Greatest comeback in 1AA history at that time. Back came the Grizzlies. And that's where it all started. Those kids were sophomores that year. Those kids were wore red shirts. And that was the start of the, of the run that took them to the national championship. And if they even had the year after that, 
to a 15 and 0 season and return trip to Marshall the next year. How big a deal is it for a game like that, the South Dakota game that happens years prior, a couple of years before the actual national championship, to set the foundation for something like belief or magic or the 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 knowledge that every game is a winnable game and that you're going to find a way to do it? Because that seemed like that's where it started. As you said, you didn't expect it to happen that day, but eventually you did start to expect it. And even more importantly than you in the booth, the players on the sideline, the coaches on the sideline, started to know that they were going to win games. And again, this is not yet a program at this time that had that foundation of winning that it that it now has. No, not at all. And, you know, the team in 94, which could have been the best team ever, loses to Delaware 49-48, you know, could well have been a th- three, three times in a row winning the national championship. I think if we win that game, we may run the table the next year, which we did, and win it all. But it's just, when you look down the roster, and I did that today, who was on that 93 team, all, every one of those guys could be an all-conference player. And every one of them deserves the accolades that they received. And now they can call themselves forever the national champion. Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, is sponsored by First Security Bank. And Coulter, while First Security has long been a supporter of the University of Montana and UM Athletics, people might be surprised to know how much First Security Bank, in fact, influenced the University of Montana program and the path they were on directly. Back in 1993, the Grizz were on their way to their second-ever berth in the Division I AA playoffs. Previously, in 1989, the only other time Montana had made it to the Division I AA playoffs. And at that time, first-round home games awarded via a bidding process. And so to help support the Grizz football team, as well as fortify the faith throughout the community of Missoula, Bill Boucher, former president of First Security Bank, stepped up to the table to help the University of Montana guarantee any potential revenue lost for the first round of the playoffs. And of course, that was recouped in a big way as the University of Montana in 1993 then started the first of 17 straight playoff berths. And in 1995, that local optimism was turned into national prominence as Montana made a run all the way to the 1995 National Championship. First Security Bank is proud to sponsor Grizz Greats and this 25 part podcast series commemorating the silver anniversary of the 1995 national champions for security bank a proud supporter of grizz athletics and the university of montana well coming into 1995 it's interesting because you do you look at that 1994 team and you talk about guys like scott Gregg, the highest draft pick not only in the university of montana's history but i think at that point i think he was only uh the third highest draft pick in the history of the big sky conference i think that only Sean Collins from Northern Arizona and and uh, Bill Kohler from Montana State were higher draft picks. But then you talk about two of the leading receivers in the history of the school, Shalon Baker, Scott Guernsey. I mean, that, that 94 team was loaded, and they lost a ton. And so coming into 1995, only 12 returning starters. I know they had a couple offensive linemen coming back, um, some guys that had played some football for them at receiver but needed to assume star roles. And on defense, you know, you had – 
you had your Hansi Manzanares and Sean Gokachia, but also a lot of guys that hadn't broken through yet. We didn't know what Jason Kribo was going to become at that point. I think only 12 returning starters coming in the 1995 season. So what was the but, – but, but, but you have Dickinson, right? You have, you have the centerpiece. What was the attitude within the program and then externally as well uh, about the expectations for that year entering 1995? Well, you know Missoula. As far as Missoula was concerned, we couldn't lose a game from there on. But the whole thing is, what they established was the belief that they were that good, and it wasn't so much the personnel individually. It was the leader, of course, in Dickinson, and it was the fact that they'd been there. They knew that uh, David told, I forget which year it happened, Dickinson told Coach Reed early in his career, our goals are too low. The goals, as they said, at the first of the year. The goal is to win the Big Sky Conference. I'm not here to win the Big Sky Conference. I'm here to win the national championship. That went up on the board, and from there, the rest is history. So it, it was the momentum of getting getting that huge comeback, for one thing, but not so much the star quality, but the team quality led by the greatest leader that, that will ever be. That Just like President Clinton said that night at the, uh, at the post-game party, I'm sure glad you're too young to run for president. Well, they could sure run for governor, that's for sure. The year before, in 1994, Mick, uh, Dave got hurt, and he gutted out uh, through an ankle injury, I think in the first round of the playoffs, but then didn't play in the next game, which Montana managed to win, but also didn't play in what ended up being their final game of the season, which they ended up losing with him on the sidelines. How much did missing those last two games and having the season end that way without his ability to be on the field, did that fuel him going into that senior senior year? Oh, you know, I'm not sure it had a huge effect. I think that uh, I think some of that stuff is overblown with the people on the outside. I knowing Dave, uh, I never talked to him about it. And in fact, this is a great one. I'm the radio guy, right? Well, Coach Reed won't let let me talk to his quarterback. He he protected Dave Tickinson like there was no other player. We had another guy on the defense that didn't talk to the becomes an all conference guy. And he didn't talk to the media either. He just had a bad experience in high school. Wouldn't talk to the media. Well, Dan Downs, I'm calling you out, buddy. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> uh, I saw him once here a couple of years ago. Somebody introduced me to him. And I said at the time, I didn't want to talk. Didn't want to talk to him. He didn't talk to me. I don't want to talk to him. He just had a bad experience. And, Coach Reed was very protective of, of Dave Dickinson. There were those that had access. You could get your time with him, your private time. But it wasn't like they ran him out there at being uh, having media responsibilities every week because Dickie would rather not have. He doesn't want any of that stuff. All he wants is what's between the lines. When you go into that 95 season, and we'll get into the postseason and the run that that was, and obviously the national championship in a moment, but what do you remember most? What, what story comes to mind when you think about that regular season and, and the ride that it was, a couple losses along the way, but obviously an, an outstanding season that's building towards a national championship. What stands out to you from the regular season of that 95 year? The first game of the year at Washington State, I've been a Cougar my whole life because I grew up in Spokane. And uh, 
So getting the chance to meet Bob Robertson, the voice of the Cougars, was on my list of things to do that day. Unfortunately, I was on my hands and knees underneath the counter hooking stuff up. When Bob came through the door to meet me, I heard his voice bang my head on the table, knocked off part of the equipment, came up with a smile on my face and introduced myself. <laughs> that, that was the start of the wazoo. The rest of the season, you know, to tell you the truth, it's a blur. I don't remember much until the playoffs. It just became a blur that when everything started breaking and the upsets started happening in the in the postseason, and now we're going to play at home again. Nobody wins here. And now we're going to play at home again. It was just like the writing was in the stars that they were going to seed us to the championship, and by golly, they did. You mentioned that playoff run, and, and I mean, that, that team was obviously so offensively prolific for the duration of the year. I mean, you're talking 54 against Minnesota Duluth, 54 against Boise State, 49 against Weber State, 43 in a loss to Idaho, 63 against Eastern Washington, 42 against the Cats. But it, it hit a completely different gear in the playoffs. And uh, so, first of all, to start with the, the, the air read, I mean, the – Don Reed's offense was so ahead of its time. And I think that, honestly, the Grizz ran it so proficiently, 93, 94, 95, that the league, even though they were lighting up the league, the league had a little bit more, uh, they, they kind of knew what to expect. But then you start playing Eastern Kentucky and Georgia Southern and Stephen F. Austin, I don't think they knew what hit them. You're talking about just rolling teams, beating them by seven and eight touchdowns. So, I mean, just first of all, the offense in general, how ahead of its time was it? And do you feel like just the fact that they were able to play some unfamiliar opponents at home in the playoffs even catered to them being more explosive and, and scoring even more points? Well, it was kind of like watching the Canadian Football League. You know, the way that uh, he lined everybody up, aside from the fact that you couldn't run to the line of scrimmage. When those teams came from back east, or I guess eastern Illinois is back east, uh, they they had never seen that kind of motion. They'd never seen those kind of plays. Who do you who do you guard? Who do you who do you take on the scouting report and say this is the guy we can't let beat me? Well, there isn't that guy. There were so many people that could that could contribute. Uh, I wouldn't have wanted to tight end on that team, but since my good buddy Gerns was, he he wasn't really a tight end. He was more of a receiver, and of course he was our punter as well. Incidentally, I just nominated him for the Grizzly Sports Hall of Fame, a well deserved honor on his part, and. Uh, he, he he was one of these guys that punted the ball and it went 30 yards in the air and, and then rolled another 20. So his average looked pretty good, but he wasn't the consummate punter. He played in the league, you know, in high school against Jack, Jack Swarthout's teams. So he had an interesting relation with, with Coach Swarthout as well. But, you know, those, like I said, it's, that year is a blur other than just spots. I, I looked down and said, I didn't remember that we'd lost two games that year. And I don't, I really don't remember that second loss. It was just a bygone conclusion that we were going to the house. And when we got there, we were going to win it all. 
You know Blackfoot Communications for our dedication and commitment to support the communities we serve. Did you also know we're experts at keeping customers and businesses connected to their families and clients? At home, Blackfoot keeps you connected with fast internet, reliable phone, and work-from-home options. For your business, Blackfoot keeps you connected with secure corporate networks, unified communications, and remote workforce solutions. For more information, visit grizzgreats.com or call 866-541-5000. Blackfoot. Connect to more. You know, Mick, much has been made, and rightfully so, of the fact that the first three games of that playoff run, Montana outscored their opponents 163-14. to uh, They played all three of those games, as you mentioned, in Missoula. And then the national championship is not even a neutral site. they got to go across country playing on you know a road game uh, at Marshall. Obviously a very good team, the, the, one of, if not the definitive power at that time in one AA. And it's a very different deal when you've been rolling the way that Montana was rolling through those playoffs. It's like a hot knife through butter, and then all of a sudden you got to go now on the road and play this really good football team, and it's a low-scoring game, relatively speaking. How much confidence did you have that Montana was going to find a way to win that game, especially when it started in the way that it kind of was maybe catering a little bit more in terms of style or at least pace to to Marshall and be in a completely different environment than what Montana had uh, had been in in the entire postseason? You know how you say that team won the uh, won the pregame or they won the uh, the getting off the bus when you saw those guys in pregame. You saw those guys that weigh in and getting off the bus. You're thinking to yourself, "I wonder how long it'll be before we'll be back in Missoula," because they looked really, they looked like a pro team. And uh, with Pennington running the show, it probably could have been a pro team, I guess. Uh, not. It was kind of one of those uh, Goliath stories, where really Goliath was had everything going for them. They had 32,000 people, which I might say were entirely gracious to us and really gracious. I'll tell you a story later about how they treated me after the game. Uh, We had so much going that day that was against us. But then you got a guy who's a sophomore, who's 8 of 13 on the season, kicks a 48-yard field goal. And you start wondering, huh, wonder if we can play with these guys. And it's a relatively low score. They didn't blow us out. We're still in it. Still tied. We still got a chance. Four and a half minutes. Still got a chance. It's like all those things just just fell in line. And so when Andy Larson, who makes that 48-yarder, like you said, to open the game, has to walk out there to kick a relatively short field goal, but there's no such thing as a short field goal when you're talking about a national championship on the line. What was running through your mind, and what did you think when you watched that play happen and, and saw Montana take it the final lead of the game? Well, before I kicked it, I thought we were in good shape. We did everything right on that last drive. Uh, I can remember saying when Mike made the catch that ultimately led us to close enough to kick a field goal, I said he consumes the football. He grabs it on both sides. He consumes it. There's no way the ball is coming out. Just I just knew that at that time, this was our ball game. As he's standing to kick the field goal, 
I'm not thinking that so much. I'm thinking this is a young kid that's, I didn't know he was 8 or 13. I probably had it on my scouting report somewhere, but I didn't remember saying it anyway. But the pressure of that situation, but it speaks to who he is. He's a banker now. He acts just the same as he did then as he does now. I happened to run into him uh, at a client up here at Mackenzie River, and uh, and uh, a new dentist was coming to town, and the bank was going to bankroll him, and and so I had a grizzly yearbook with me, and I went through it and found that picture of him coming off the field, and introduced him to the guy, as you know, you're talking to a guy who's kind of big stuff around here. And he was unbelievably embarrassed by something like that that would be brought up. Just I was just a kicker. Yeah. As I said, was he was lining up destiny on the end of his toe. Was the last thing I said before that ball went up. The next thing you heard was Bill Knowles say, down on the field line, at the goal line, it made it by this much. This much, Mick. However, however, I'm supposed to see that. I don't know, but anyway, that was uh, that was the end of the game for us. And then Montana, for the first time, is a national champion, and they're there in West Virginia. What do you remember about being in West Virginia? I know a lot of folks in Missoula and Western Montana remember the mayhem that ensued when the charter plane landed back in Missoula and the party uh, started uh, back in Montana. But what was it like to be in West Virginia in those hours after you know the game was over and and the celebration? That's you know a group of twenty five hundred Grizz fans that traveled over there and then and then the team. Well, some things happen for a reason. I'd strung, uh, seems like 500 feet of coax from the press box to the locker room. Never done that before, never done it since. I had a engineer by the name of Dave Syrak, who now is an ESPN guy. Uh, he was, he produced the show for me. I had Bill Knowles on the sidelines. So I was in the locker room for the trophy presentation, in the locker room for singing happy birthday to coach Reed and in the locker room to talk to this kid who just booted the, booted the field goal. One of my treasured pictures is just talking to Andy after that point. And it, it was just, it was tumultuous in the, in the locker room. You couldn't hear anything. Uh, you couldn't hardly get around. Uh, many of the people had made their way in there that, probably weren't supposed to be in there, but let's just say Marshall security at the end didn't much care what the Montana people did. So the locker room was its, its own scene. As I'm rolling up the coax, the field's quiet, the lights are dimmed. It's past, eight, past sunset. And it's uh, it was just an odd feeling coming up the sidelines with that coax looking up to the press box and going, my God, they're going to have to hold the plane. I'll never get this thing curled up. <laughs> and as I'm going back to the press box, I got a guy over across the fence going, hey, hey, Montana, he yells. I go, hey, looking at that that old boy, I'll tell you, that that gentleman looks like uh, he goes bear hunting with a switch. He yells at me again. 
hey, Mon, I can't, won't you come over here for a minute? I said, I don't think so. And he said, no, no, come over here. Was that not just the greatest game you'd ever seen? And uh, I was so shocked that I walked over, put the coax down, drank a beer in their tailgate, and uh, we exchanged coats. He gave me his Marshall starter jacket, which I've never worn, and I gave him my Grizzly starter jacket, which I bet he hasn't ever worn either. And then back to rolling the coax up. And indeed, the planes were uh, sitting on the tarmac ready to go. It's too bad that I don't know whether there were planes. I think there was one plane that didn't actually get there on time. But can you imagine 10 charter planes from Missoula, Montana, those Marshall people. When we came back in 96, that's when we heard all the stories about all the interaction between our fans and their fans. Because, of course, I'm working, so the Friday night wasn't exactly like we were out hitting the streets having a good old time. We were we were down among the team and going to the meetings and stuff like that. But the next year, we did hear those stories. When we when you get back to Missoula, what what was that scene like? Well, they didn't tell us, and uh, the bus unloads. They do a good job of positioning the buses where we don't see these people or hear these people, and everybody's tired. And in the players' mind, I think uh, they're waiting to go to the players' party on it. <laughs> uh, bigger than one one that's ever been had. Um. So as we're filing off the bus, filing off the plane onto the bus, we we think we're on our way back back to the stadium, and we're told that there's going to be a um, a celebration at the field house, and then we're told no, it's too late. They decided to wait and do that later. So now we're really confused. So the bus pulls past the front of the plane. And instead of heading for the highway, it heads for the Forest Service. Everybody's going, great. The bus driver's lost, trying to get off the tarmac. And over we go, and here's this group of people that have been there a while. And the cheers start going up, and the chants start going up, and it just starts... It was like you'd, you'd run into all It's like it happened all over again. You got to celebrate in that locker room. You got to celebrate on the tarmac. And, of course, later you got to celebrate the field house. It was, it was one of the biggest surprises of my life. Uh, I'm a rather emotional guy, and I had tears in my eyes before, uh, before I got on the bus as we hear this kind of uh, roar, this kind of, starting bully and roaring, deepening, deepening, deepening. By the time they see the first player head towards that line of people, they had them all roped off. And, it, yeah, it was something to believe. It was quite surreal. Coulter, in 1993, the Grizz football team was looking to host its first playoff game of the decade and just its second season of playoffs in school history. As we know, you got to have – 
some financial backing to guarantee a home game, and former First Security Bank President Bill Boucher stepped up, spearheading a group of local business owners to guarantee that bid for UM Athletics, and that commitment from First Security Bank to UM has never wavered. Bill Boucher, Gordy Fix, several other business owners around the city of Missoula certainly had a huge influence in stepping up, certainly some of the first true believers in what Grizz football could become and what they could mean to the Missoula community. Two years later, in 1995, the University of Montana had turned that local optimism into national prominence. The Grizz won the Division I AA National Championship, the first national title in the history of the university. And 25 years later, First Security Bank is still proud to sponsor the Grizzlies. First Security Bank, a presenting sponsor for Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, a 25-part podcast series remembering that epic 1995 season. First Security Bank, proud sponsor of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana. That that game, that season, that championship, that trophy, it, it stamped an already legendary career for Don Reed, but then he decided to to ride off into the sunset. And that, w- that was his last game coaching at Montana or anywhere. And uh, here we are 25 years later, and it's amazing. I-, I think that on one hand, I think he gets all the credit he ever deserved for the foundation he laid. But on the other hand, when you watch college football now, it looks like what Don Reed was doing 30 years ago. Uh, that in itself is amazing, the innovator that he was. But what what do you think that that did just to cement his legend uh, amongst the state of Montana in general, the fact that he won his last game to win the national championship for the Grizz? Well, Bobby Hawk's one of my best friends. But there's times when Bobby Ball drives me nuts. (laughs) (laughs) I can say that, see. I can say that now. Uh, Air Reed would never drive you nuts. Because you never knew what they were going to do, where they were going to do it, who was going to be the guy, and uh, who was going to make this a, a spectacular run back. Who was going to get you that extra possession? And don't forget what a big part that safety was in that game. The Butte boys, Randy Riley, Brian Toon, squeeze Pennington. Pennington tries to force it out, throws it away in the end zone safety. Final score, two points. It was the difference in the ball game, and uh, I think it kind of, it kind of, it's kind of missed as to what the importance was when they, when they talk about what's the four things they say: the, the, the drive, the play, the catch, the kick. That was what the, what the whole thing was described in that last four and a half minutes. And uh, when you think about a safety against a team like that and it making the difference in the ball game. We go 12 plays, 72 yards, four and a half minutes. Well, that's all great and good, and the field goal is good. But you're tied before that play. A pivotal play to be sure. And the way that legends grow and, and myths are accentuated is, is so fascinating, especially when you analyze history in general not just football history but history in general but i think that uh if you're just to ask the common grizz fan about the 1995 team they certainly remember don reed and dave dickinson and the kick and like you just said the the drive the the play the kick all of those things but tell us about some of the other unsung heroes because obviously those butte guys i mean making that safety a huge deal 
you know, Blade McElmurray, uh, a couple big hits, including one he got a penalty on, that, that sort of reset the tone. I think maybe announced to Marshall, hey, you guys aren't the biggest, baddest team in this game. Uh, but that whole team, it was is filled with, you know, had this one pivotal star in Dave Dickinson, but filled with a whole bunch of other guys that were huge contributors. What do you remember about some of the other guys that were a part of, of this, this fabric and this team? Well, you know, you look at the all-conference team from that year, and Montana's represented in every offensive category except one. Their first team or second team, every, every team except one. A kicker. If you go to the second team, they're not represented by anybody except this wide receiver named Mike Earhart. It's just it just seems seems odd that that's the way it works out. But I think about Simo Eric Simonson, best friend of Dave Dickinson. I think of a picture in I think Kim Brigham's book that shows shows Simo standing over him. He was about six eight. Dave was about five two. Something like that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Dickie had that, uh, that Fran Tarkington, that'll date the listenership, uh, way of feeling backside pressure, hold, 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 till just that last second when he's either able to complete the pass or he's able to duck under it and, and buy time. That was his great, greatest asset. He didn't have the greatest arm. He sure didn't have the greatest legs. But he had a sense for for football and continues to show a sense of football. Um, you know, Mike Agee from Kalispell had a great season. Uh, ends up marrying one of the Wonder Girls. Um, you know, if you if you go down the line of that group of guys, I don't want to do disservice to anybody by pointing anybody out. There isn't a guy that you can't remember had a had a great player or a great contribution, or maybe just said something. I mean, was said off the field that people don't hear or in the locker room or wherever. It's, it's just one of those one of those teams that had all the pieces. Well, Mick, we want to get into to what you're up to now, but the last question here just on this, you had just started your career as a as the voice of the Grizz from a football standpoint at that time, just your third season, you went on to call for many years after that. When you think about that national championship and what that meant as the in terms of the direction of this football program and the dominance that it enjoyed for for so very many years, decades after this, while you were on the call. What do you think about in terms of, of, of the, the, the projection of the team as a result of that and its place, that 95 season? You know, I broadcast seven national championship games, and I don't think that I ever thought that I'd do one, let alone have a second one the next year. But to have a chance to win seven, that's what that championship in 95 did. It took us to the level that we were recognized top ten whether we deserved it or not. Nobody wanted to come here and play. Feeling the, trying to fill the schedule was a nightmare as no non-conference team wanted to play. There were games that jump out that I think about that were pivot, just as pivotal as the national championship. I think about winning at James Madison. Nobody wins a playoff game at James Madison. That was one of those raucous situations. I think about winning at North Texas 
when we went across the field, it was 100 degrees. When I walked across the field with Wayne Hogan, and their athletic director came running up behind, said something disparaging that I can't repeat on the radio, and said he wouldn't be bringing his team to Missoula next year because of the fact that we took him apart at their house. He wanted no part of it. Just a couple of games that stick out in my mind, and and uh, of course there's there's many others than that, but where it took us to was expectation, and that's a double-edged sword. There are, there are those people, especially the younger set, that just can't understand why you don't beat the Bobcats every year. Well, I'm not liking four in a row either, and it's going to seem like six in a row if we ever get out on the field on the field again. But uh, that was an awful long string against the Cats, and, and they were better than us in two or three of those games. But the aura of Grizz football seemed to carry us through even when we didn't deserve to win. And I think that all goes back, and I'll go further back than that 95 team. I still think it started in 93. Of course, it, that's in line with when I started. So 31 years went like it was yesterday. Well, Mick, you, you had that three-decade run and, and what a run it was. And then in retirement, I know that you've been keeping yourself very busy doing uh, plenty, of, plenty of different things. What are you up to now? Well, I serve on a lot of community boards. I'm chairman of the Montana Tax Appeal Board. I'm chairman of the City County Planning Board. We're building two boys and girls clubs up here. We've finished one. We're within 275000 of the $5 million to build the second one. Um, I serve on the Solid Waste Management Board. Um, I was a CASA volunteer and a guardian ad litem for 10 years. And still, still do a little bit of that volunteering. But when I came to Polson, I said that I wanted to contribute to the community, a community the size that I thought I could have the biggest, uh, the biggest footprint on. And I hope that I've been able to do that in, in helping folks. But then, as things happen, uh, the doctor come along and said, uh, "You've got multiple sclerosis," which I had no idea what that is. He said, "You've probably had it for 30 years." Don Holst will tell you he thought I was just clumsy because I could trip over a pencil, right. but it was all had to do all had to do with the disease. I guess. I guess so. That's left me uh, unable to walk at least at this time. Uh, I spend my days in a in a recliner, and uh, so that's a it's uh, been a bitter bitter pill to swallow. But what I'm trying to do is I've got a GoFundMe page that uh, I'm trying to raise enough money to buy a vehicle that will allow me to be lifted off the ground with my wheelchair into a vehicle to where I can get out and see the world and contribute uh, instead of doing it all on Zoom. Thank God for Zoom. I've been able to do most of my meetings that way. So just a, just a cheap pitch. Uh or my GoFundMe page, I've in its third week, it's raised twelve thousand dollars, about halfway home, something along those lines. And anybody who's interested in doing that, I'd appreciate it. And if not, they can always send me a check, my golly. But people have been gracious, has been gracious to hear from 
former players and former coaches. And do people just search Mick Holine on the GoFundMe uh, site? Is that the easiest way to access it, Mick? Yeah, that's the easiest way. Well, if they wanted to call you guys, you could always give them my phone number and I give them my address as well. Uh, I don't care who has my phone number or address if they haven't found me by now. They're not uh, They're not a very good detective. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mick, we uh, we wish you the best in that. We know that that uh, that vehicle is coming and coming soon, and we look forward to that for you certainly. But we really appreciate you sharing, man. You had a front row seat to a lot of that, and uh, and and painted the picture for for a bunch of Grizz fans for a whole bunch of games over a lot of years, and you are uh, indelible to them in that regard. Not the least of which, of course, the first of those seven national championships that you called. We really appreciate you taking the time and uh, and telling some stories with us today. Well, and thanks to you guys for what you're doing for sports. I mean, I don't uh, get tuned in. Well, in fact, I, I never heard your program. <laughs> but uh, I, I know that from what I hear down in Missoula that is well listened to and the, that the things that you're doing, um, they need to be done. And there's so much out there. There's People say, well, what what can you talk about about sports now that there's no games? My God, now you can tell all those stories. Vince Scully would be going crazy. (laughs) Um, And and did, you know. And it's one of those things that uh, the the feature side of sports and the influence that sport has on our lives just can't be diminished. It's an important part of who we are. Thanks for listening to this episode of Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast to hear the entire series. Our thanks to Blackfoot Communications and First Security Bank for making this podcast series possible. And thanks to Mick Holine for being our guest for episode one. We'll talk to you again soon on Grizz Greats.